Center for Educational Freedom's very first Facebook Live event. Uh, for all of you who are watching, if you want to send in questions for this event, please send them on Twitter, Facebook, using hashtag CatoCEF. That's CatoCEF. Um, my name is Neil McCluskey, and I am the director of the Center for Educational Freedom. It's not a mistake that the hashtag is CatoCEF. The CEF stands for Center for Educational Freedom. I'm the director, again, of the center. Uh, just to tell you very quickly what the Center for Educational Freedom does, uh, as you can tell from the name, we work on education policy, um, but we can sort of run the gamut. We can do anything from pre-K education policy to higher ed, um, and we do. We touch on all of those things, but sort of the heart and soul of what we do is school choice at the K through 12 level. That's what every person has experience with, you are compelled to attend school or to get an education to the K through 12 level. And our primary focus at the Center for Educational Freedom is to, to enable people to get that education that's best for their individual child through school choice. Uh, that's a very quick summary of what Cato Center for Educational Freedom is. Again, if you have questions, including about what the center does, you can send them hashtag Cato CEF. And it's now my pleasure to introduce uh, uh, my compatriot here for today's uh, Facebook Live event, Corey DeAngelis. Corey is the new policy analyst at the Center for Educational Freedom. He's actually been with us for a few months, but he just at the beginning of January joined us full time right here in the DC headquarters of the Cato Institute. Um, and he is the author of the new policy anal analysis. Uh, I should know that better. Uh, policy Analysis, uh, The Public Benefit of Private Schooling, which went up on Cato's website a couple of days ago. Corey, welcome. Tell us a little bit about yourself and the things you work on. Thanks for the intro, Neil. So yeah, my name is Corey DeAngelis. I previously was at the University of Arkansas. I'm actually still finishing my dissertation on the societal impacts of private school choice, which is really related to the stuff that we're going to be talking about today. Um, so I'm a PhD candidate over there, and then uh, I just moved here January 4th and still adjusting to the cold, uh, but it's been great. I really like uh, uh, D.C., and it's a big change from Arkansas, but I'm still adjusting, and it's great. And have you in, in any way been co-opted by the swamp? Are you now part of the swamp, or are you here but staying out of the swamp? I'm in the swamp, but not of the swamp. Good. That is very <laughs> important. That's sort of what we aim for at the Cato Institute and certainly the Center for Educational Freedom. Um, you may be wondering why the Center for Educational Freedom is having a special Facebook Live event today, and that's because it's National School Choice Week, and that's a week when lots of organizations that are interested in getting maximum ability to families to get the education that's best for their unique child. This is when lots of these organizations do all sorts of events, uh, write all sorts of policy pieces to try and get the ideas behind why we want educational freedom, why we want school choice out to the country. Uh, and that is certainly what we are doing here with this event today. Um, uh, I'm going to ask Corey in a second to tell us about, just so you know what the types of school choice are. Uh, and again, if you if you have any questions, because there'll be things that we forget, some things we don't cover, maybe in enough detail, you can send any questions you have using hashtag CatoCEF. So, Corey, just if you would, just tell us, you know, very briefly, what, sort of what the spectrum of school choice looks like. All right, thanks. So, yeah, make sure you're tweeting in using hashtag CatoCEF and even uh, participating in the Facebook Live uh, comments threads, because we're really looking forward to the questions. That's what we really want to focus on. 
Uh, but yeah, it's National School Choice Week, and with that, I should define what we actually mean by school choice. In a sense, all parents and families have some type of public and private school choice. The public school choice is called Tebow choice. No, I'm not talking about the previous football player, but Charles Tebow. Spelled differently. Uh, yeah, spelled yeah. a little differently, but mm -hmm. pronounced the same. Um, but he, he pointed out that when people choose their, their residences, they choose their residences based on a lot of different things. And one of those things is access to a high-quality educational institution. However, those transaction costs associated with moving houses whenever you're not you know, really excited with how your educational environment is, is really a really high transaction cost. So a lot of families uh, do not have that opportunity. And for pr private school choice, the most basic form that everybody has is being able to pay for the public school out of pocket, which everybody has to do through property taxes, uh, but then paying for the private school out of pocket as well, paying for the private school tuition and essentially paying for two schools um, just because you're upset with your residentially assigned uh, school. So yeah. that's one form. It is. I think it's important because a lot of people don't recognize this. They don't make the connection that there are people exercising school choice, uh, but they do it through where they buy a house. And you basically have then said tuition equals the price of a house, usually in a fairly expensive neighborhood. So it's choice. It's just super expensive and extremely regressive in that all the benefit goes to wealthier people. Yes, yeah, so yeah, definitely even middle-class families uh, do not want to fork out a bunch of money for public and private schools because they, they see that it's uh, highly costly and uh, very difficult to do. So school choice programs, again, can be divided into public and private school choice. Public school choice, everybody's familiar with charter schools. Uh, about three million children have access to charter schools today in the United States. Uh, essentially what a charter school is is uh, it's a public school of choice, it's fr which means that it's free, has no tuition, um, so the cost or the price the, at the point of entry is zero, as an economist would say. Uh, and whenever more people want to use the charter school or attend the charter school, then there are seats available. It must be determined by random lottery uh, to determine who actually gets lucky enough to go to the charter school. There's also, it, uh, real fast, yeah. charter schools, are they public or private? I'd say they're, a lot of people get confused. They're, they're public schools of choice because they are free. Um, and then also the government determines which of these schools can actually enter the market. So there's very high market entry. Um, but they are public schools of choice mostly because they can't charge tuition. And sort of an, an ostensibly private entity gets this charter from some public entity. And that school is supposed to be kind of free of a lot of rules and regulations, right? So it can, in theory, it can be... Yeah. It can be more innovative and sort of have its own ethos and things like that. Yeah, and then also with public school choice, there's intra-district, inter-district school choice. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people have probably heard of magnet schools. I went to a magnet school in uh, during my high school years. Hmm. Every other year I went to a, a, a traditional public school. Um, so if I mess up at all today, just blame it on my you know public schooling background. I'm sorry. Uh, me too, uh, by the way. Oh, Mainly, yeah, public all schools K through too. 12? Yeah, so any errors can be laid at the feet of the public school system. So that always helps. Uh, but yeah, magnet schools typically have some type of specialization um, similar to charter schools. And then private school choice, EdChoice, the, uh, formerly known as the Freeman Foundation, uh, has laid out the definitions of different types of private school choice programs, which is really helpful. Um, but you, there's education savings accounts, there's voucher programs, there's tuition tax credit scholarships, there's tuition tax credit scholarship deductions. But the biggest one that everybody really hears about is vouchers, where you 
if you don't like the public school that you're assigned to, you take a fraction of that funding to the private school of your choice. And voucher programs and all these types of programs vary in their amount of regulations. And we can talk a little bit more about the differences uh, a little later, but that's mm -hmm. the broad overview of school choice and what, what we have as available options today. Right, right. And there, we actually, internally, uh, sort of within the school choice community, we have big debates about if you want private school choice, so there are debates between charters and private school people. Um, but also, do you use vouchers? Do you use tax credits? By the way, we have this uh, sort of new book, Educational Freedom, Remembering Andrew Coulson, Debating His Ideas. Uh, there are several chapters in here talking about the difference between tax credit programs and vouchers, which is likely to produce the most choice, reach the most people, <laughs> and is there a trade-off there between how much regulation they, they carry with them? Right, so. and, and I'd just like to point out that the publicly funded programs are typically bigger in size, so that you, you, can, you can give more scholarships away or vouchers away mm -hmm. in that sense, and you can have a higher demand side effect. Mm -hmm. However, the private school choice or the privately funded private school choice programs have a benefit in that they're less likely to be regulated, so you have more of a degree of different mm -hmm. types of choice. However, they're typically smaller in size, so you have to kind of weigh the costs and benefits of the demand side and the supply side uh, mm -hmm. when you're thinking of the funding mechanism. Yeah. So if you have questions, again, if we didn't hit everything again, feel free to ask questions about the, the spectrum of school choice using hashtag Cato CEF. Uh, we do, of course, promise in the title of this event that we're going to talk about the non-academic outcomes. <laughs> Just to sort of set this up for how we've gotten to the point where we're actually bothering to ask about the non-academic outcomes. Uh, if you've been following education policy for the last 15, 20 years, uh, you'd have noticed that a huge emphasis, almost an obsession in, in education policy has been on Standardized test scores, the, the end-all, be-all, almost the only metric we've used of whether or not a school or a way of delivering education has been successful has been, well, what do the standardized test scores look like? Um, uh, does school choice work better than no school choice? Well, we only know if, if, if a charter school or voucher receiving school gets better test scores. But uh, this all sort of came to a head. You probably heard of Common Core. I have talked a lot about Common Core, which came to sort of represent the idea that the federal government, so a centralized government, was pushing a very simplistic um, and, and hidebound way of assessing schools with standardized test scores. And we started to move away from that. Um, the Every Student Succeeds Act, which replaced No Child Left Behind, started to say, okay, states, first of all, you can start to run your systems, and we're not going to have the only measure or the only really meaningful measure be test scores. And the good news is the research now has started to look at school choice beyond just what are the test scores to all sorts of non-cognitive, and that's you know, sort of uh, uh, you know, wonky way of saying stuff that's not test scores, the non-cognitive effects of school choice. Corey has, as he said, looked a lot of this. Would you really just briefly run us through things like grit and stuff like that? Yeah, so when I started at the University of Arkansas just a few years ago, I was just really excited about studying non-cognitive effects, so grit, determination, student effort, effects on stuff like civic outcomes, like is the student more or less likely to vote? Uh, are they more have, or less likely to be criminals? We have a graphic for that. Uh, oh, so yeah, make great. sure you take a look um, at that. So I actually did a review of, of the evidence. Uh, I looked at every experimental and quasi-experimental study, every causal study on the subject in the United States, uh, of private school choice programs on the effects of uh, those, those particular programs on these 
non-academic outcomes such as tolerance and civic engagement. And I was actually surprised to see out of the 11 studies, there, was no study, there were no studies that indicated a negative effect from private school choice on these civic outcomes. And I was surprised for, for one reason was, was in the media, we see a lot of uh, private school choice, getting access to private school choice will just cripple democracy as we know it. Public schools are necessary to foster these civic values. It's the Horace Mann arguments that, that really started the public school movement in the United States. But the scientific evidence isn't showing that at all. And it's probably because uh, parents choose schools based on their abilities to shape these non-cognitive outcomes such as uh, character skills and whether or not you're a good citizen. So six of the studies out of the 11 found strictly positive effects, statistically significant positive effects on uh, these types of outcomes. Five of the studies have found no, no effect, but again, mm -hmm. none of them found any negative effects as are, is what is touted in the media over and over yeah. again. Yeah, and we've done a lot of historical work uh, and, and other work uh, looking at, first of all, the whole idea of you know, horseman, uh, John Dewey a little later talked about, oh, we've got to have these public schools because people are so diverse. The way we unify them is all with one school system. Uh, part of that was a sort of actually frightening idea, which is we're actually going to form young minds so that they're kind of identical, that they have whatever we consider proper American values. And the other component of it was, and this was more John Dewey's thing, the mm -hmm. horseman, is we bring diverse kids together in Dewey's case, he was saying, and actually let them work on projects they want, so not force something into their minds, let them do what they want, but do it with people different than themselves, that they would sort of come together. The reality is, if you look at the history of American schooling and public schooling, it's, if anything, it's been divisive. It's failed to bring people together because we said, where you go to school based on where you live. Yeah. People tend to, first of all, you gotta be rich enough to live in the good districts. Uh, and people have a tendency to live with people like themselves. And then of course we had massive fights about things like, well, whose version of the Bible will be used in the public schools? Um, and in fact, uh, to tout another thing that the Center for Educational Freedom does, we have a, something called the Public Schooling Battle Map, which uh, I maintain and spend a whole lot of time on, so I hope people will use it. Uh, and by the way, we have, a, we have a hashtag for that too. If you have some sort of identity or values-based battle in your school system, so it can be Whose version of history are you teaching? Or, um, you know, is there a religious objection to a school on a, I mean, to a book on a mandatory reading list? Uh, that sort of thing goes up on this, this Cato public schooling battle map. Um, you can also see the, the pub school fights uh, Twitter handle. Um, and so you can follow. We, every day we're putting up new fights as we find them up on there. But what this does, what this is intended to do, is show people that we are constantly forcing people into combat in the schools that are supposed to bring everyone together. But the reality is diverse people have different things they want for their kids, different values they want taught, different interpretations of history. And what we're doing is forcing them to fight with each other. Sound and, about right and, to you? Yeah, and I think part of the problem is that you know, with residential assignment, uh, just just imagine if you're residentially assigned to your nearest subway. The subway wouldn't do very good. They may even poison you, uh, and they may not very taste very good unless uh, unless you're able to exit them. So that's one of the problems with residential assignment is the competitive pressure to increase quality. But then also, when you assign kids based just on their residence and what age they happen to be, you're putting a bunch of very different kids into the same classroom. Uh, or the same school, and it may be very difficult 
for the teacher to foster these these very difficult debates about these sensitive subjects such as, you know, what type of bathroom should we have? So I think they just avoid talking about those subjects altogether almost. Not not mm-hmm. all teachers, but the incentives are aligned in a way that if I'm being incentivized to shape a standardized test score and not being incentivized to shape these touchy-feely mm-hmm. outcomes that can't be measured in a very crude uh, metric, um, I'm just, I would probably do the same thing. I'm not blaming the teachers in the public school system. I would probably just say, you know, I'm, I'm being told to shape test scores, so I'm going to do that. And any time that I spend not shaping test scores and shaping these mm-hmm. difficult debates, it's really tough to, 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 to foster a debate about a sensitive subject. You even might get in trouble. The parents might complain if the kids go home and say, look, we talked about religion in school and we weren't supposed to do that. So I think the kids come out being less tolerant of others' views because they're not taught to tolerate one another's views. and and to, to have those discussions. Yeah, meanwhile, they're not learning sort of the nuts and bolts of civics and things. Uh, part of that is because stuff like No Child Left Behind emphasized yeah. almost solely math and, and reading scores. Um, but you get into a lot of these questions and they can become pretty controversial because they touch on political issues that are going on right now. And even schools will try and uh, public schools will say, well, we should teach you to be a good volunteer, a member of your community, so you should go out and volunteer, and we'll force you to volunteer. And of course, that then becomes very values-laden. Should government be forcing people to volunteer because they say that's good? And the reality is, it may be good, but if it's forced, people don't like it. If it's a private school, you as a parent go to that private school, and basically the private school and the parent agree that these are the values we think are important, and now we can execute them. We don't have to go to sort of the lowest common denominator where we won't make anybody mad, which ends up sort of sucking the meaningful content out of the school and out of the curriculum. And when volunteerism is forced, I don't even know if we can yeah. define it as being uh, voluntary Very uh, uh, at that point. A so. very true point. Um, <laughs> make, sure, make sure you're uh, sending in your questions on Twitter or Facebook Live using the hashtag Cato, C-A-T-O-C-E-F. Yeah, which I was about to say. So do it twice as hard because now you've got two uh, warnings. But we do have actually uh, some questions already. So let me get to the first one. Um, it comes from Travis. Uh, he asks, why is the government purposely undereducating children today? Now, the first thing I would say to that is I, it's always important for us to note, I don't, I don't know what anybody's motivations are. Generally speaking, I think even people who disagree with me uh, now, they may, they may be, there may be something wrong with them because they disagree with me. But generally, I think everybody or almost everybody in education probably wants what's best for kids. Um, and so we should always say that because there's a tendency of people to say, you've criticized my school or something I mm-hmm. like. What you're really saying is I don't care about kids, and that's not at all what we're saying. But, yeah. but what do you think about Again, this idea? Yeah, I agree with Neil that I, I mostly come into the discussion thinking that everybody has good intentions. You know, that I don't think that teachers are going into the teaching profession really wanting to harm children's education-wise. education, education wise. And I'm not sure if even the bureaucrats want to harm kids um, by providing a, a low-caliber ex- expectation. I just think it's the system itself. It's not, it's not the employees. I'd probably have trouble being a teacher in a public school as well, in a traditional public school, uh, because of the fact that, again, the kids are mostly grouped based on where they live and not based on what they're interested in. And not based on, so you have a bunch of kids in a class not based, not really grouped based on ability level. So you have the teacher trying to uh, teach high end children, low end children in the same classroom, and they have to 
really uh, shape the 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 class uh, the class lesson based on all these different variables that are just so yeah. uh, diverse within one classroom. It just it makes it as difficult as possible. And I, I think uh, getting to Travis' question, that's a, one of the major reasons it seems like for many kids they are being undereducated. Is for one thing, you have to shoot at sort of this almost mythological mean of the average kid. And we know from research, there's actually no such thing as average. When you tr when you try and you know average something out, they've done this with Air Force yeah. pilots famously, uh, and they found okay, we can take these average measures, and then we find out there's nobody who has all those average measures. But there there is this need to sort of hit this this kind of mean. Um, and then there are going to be kids below it, kids above it. All the ones above it are going to feel like they're undereducated. And so there's good reason to feel that the public schools often are undereducating kids. I don't think it's, it's purposeful, but it certainly happens. Yeah, and, and in the current system, if you do a really great job at your school, uh, the biggest incentive you have to continue doing so is if people, in the long run, start moving to your geographic area and then property taxes rise and then you get more revenue that way. But that takes a long time and it's not even certain that if you're doing a good job that'll happen because what if, for example, the police force in your area is doing a very bad job and on net, even though you're doing a good job, people are leaving the area. The problem there is you may even be financially punished from the property tax revenue even if you're actually doing a good job and if people are even satisfied. So. The incentives are all messed up in the current system. I think that's the biggest problem. It has nothing to do with mm -hmm. uh, motives, I don't think, hopefully. Yep, yep. Let's go to, I got a question now from Hugh. Uh, he says, anything that breaks the education monopoly strengthens education, makes it harder to co-opt co any curriculum. Uh, do you agree? Agree or disagree? I'll read it one more time. Anything that breaks the education monopoly strengthens education and oh. makes it harder to co-opt any curriculum. So I'll take, the, I'll take a stab at the first half of that question. All right. Anything that breaks the education monopoly. So I used to have this, this, this idea when I first came into the school choice uh, debate that we should, we should just grab on to any type of policy that is an incremental policy that expands choice. Uh, whether it be a highly regulated program or not, it's still taking away from the government education monopoly. And that's how I kind of looked at it. But now, I actually have a blog that just came out about this that is titled, We Should Not, or it's, it's something along the line, I don't even remember the title, uh, but we shouldn't embrace all types of school choice because, for one example, let's just say the Louisiana Scholarship Program. It's the first and only, or it's the first uh, experimental evaluation in the world to actually find negative impacts on student achievement in the first year. And that's also one of the most highly regulated programs. Mm -hmm. And when you have programs like this, not a lot of the, the schools choose to participate. In Louisiana, only a third of the private schools chose to accept the voucher funding, and the schools that did choose to participate were of lower quality as measured right. by enrollment and, and price. Right. Um, another, another problem with that is that if the schools start accepting the voucher money or whatever, whatever, wherever the funding stream is coming from and it's highly regulated, the private schools can turn into public schools essentially. If private schools are being told that they must do everything that the public schools are doing, it shouldn't surprise us when we're seeing these studies finding that the private schools are actually behaving yeah. more like public schools. Yeah, and these are real tensions in the sort of school choice community, such yeah, as there is the one. We have a lot of <laughs> debates, even among people who like private school choice, of how much external accountability should there be. So should you be able to choose that, that private school in Louisiana? But 
that school has to give state tests and they get booted out of the program if they don't do well enough on state tests. Uh, even sort of broader than that is there are lots of tensions between uh, people who like private school choice and charter school fans. Now, generally, uh, I haven't spent a lot of time saying, well, we shouldn't have charter schools or we shouldn't have regulated voucher programs. We do spend a lot of time saying there are big dangers with a highly regulated uh, voucher program or charter school. But it, it is a big concern that we probably need to talk about more. Uh, we've actually at Cato produced evidence that um, shows that charter schools are taking a not insignificant percentage of their students from private schools. And remember, a charter school is a public school. So while charter schools certainly give a, a lot of welcome options to kids, if they're also eliminating or helping to eliminate a sector of education that is a lot more autonomous, a lot more free in the sense that they can decide what they want to teach and how they teach it, then that in the long run is a dangerous thing. And we really need to talk about when does the danger get too big where we say maybe we shouldn't keep growing charter schools if they're coming at the expense of private school choice. And, and on a related note, what also worries me about that is even if the program, let's say the Louisiana program had zero regulations, no testing accountability, um, high funding amounts, publicly funded voucher program. What I'm worried about is 10 years down the road when someone else is in charge, what if they start strapping on all these mm -hmm. regulations? And a private school, even if they don't want to put up with all the new regulations, they may very well say, look, 80% of my kids are voucher kids. This is how they go to my school. I really don't want to. I really don't want to sacrifice my 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 model or my freedom in my school, but mm -hmm. I have to, or else they'll have to shut down. So, I think that's another thing that even if a voucher program or other type of school choice program is not uh, highly regulated today, there's nothing there's nothing saying that it can't happen tomorrow. All right, got another question. This comes from Economic Man. I don't think that that's uh, the name he was born with, <laughs> uh, but Economic Man asks. It always strikes me. Um, that the public schools are politically very biased in favor of activist governments. Uh, one of the benefits of school choice is avoiding this inculcation. Has any work been done on this issue? That's a good question. Do you know any good empirical work on uh, whether or not the public schools have a sort of built-in bias toward activist government? Certainly, in a way, they are a part of activist government. Yeah, so I, I mostly look at uh, quantitative studies, and I think that these types of studies would be more qualitative, more on the theory side, and I'm sure people have uh, theorized about it in academic research, but as far as empirically speaking, I'm not sure if there's any data points on that. Yeah, the, and the history that I've looked at this, and I don't, I don't take a side usually on content. I want people to choose their content. But there certainly does seem to be, if you look at the history of public schooling and how it developed, the, the big increase in its power and its scope and its centralization was during the progressive era. And absolutely, one of the things progressives were trying to do was inculcate progressive ideas. And certainly we saw that. Um, you get into the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and you have more progressive ideas, uh, not so much about activist government, but that sort of uh, infantilized people said, look, the average person is not going to be that smart. They're going to go work in a factory. We should teach them really basic skills, like how to balance your checkbook and stuff like that. And that uh, wasn't necessarily big government other than it was saying, you're probably, to the average person, you probably don't have what it takes to run your own life. We're going to teach you the basics. In other words, you're part of a system. 
And then finally, I'd say that I've observed in my textbooks when I was a kid um, and other textbooks I've looked at, there certainly seems to be a bias toward big government. And that may be because it's written by academics and people uh, who are involved in education. And they tend, not for bad reasons, but they tend to have more of a pro-government outlook. Yeah, of course. When the state's running the schools, they have a, an obvious incentive to teach you to respect the state. Um, uh, but yeah, this really brings up the battle map again. It's the whole idea behind the battle map. Even if um, you know we had some theoretically perfect amount of bias on left to right or up down, however you want to look at the spectrum, even if we found that perfect amount and and put it into all traditional public schools, we'd still have people complaining that it's too left or too right or too yeah. uh, libertarian or, or conservative. we got or, some more questions. I'm going to get to some more uh, in a second. Remember, use hashtag CatoCEF to, uh, if you have a question. Uh, though this reminds me of something. You're from Texas, so you know what I'm talking about. There was a great irony a few years ago. Uh, Texas is one of the states that has statewide textbook adoption where the state says, look, mm -hmm. we're going to pick these textbooks that you school districts can choose from. If you choose one of these, we'll pay for it. And they got into a huge debate about whether or not the United States is a democracy. Now, this is, of course, a favorite discussion of libertarians and other people. But it struck me as ironic uh, that public schools are supposed to be a system of schools that serve a democracy and are supposed to be democratically controlled. Hard to define, but usually it's a... It's a majority, uh, is, is majority vote gets what they want. Um, and then you're supposed to get whatever they come up with. And so this majority rule system couldn't even agree if they're the system that they're in control of. That's it blows your mind just to think about what I just said. But it, it really captures, I think, the irony of this idea that we should have democratically controlled schools for everyone when none of us agree or we don't have unanimity on what the school should even teach. Well, and, and a lot of people argue that, you know, we need to democratically control schools so that kids learn about the democratic process um, when they're going through their K through 12 experience. But I fear that they can see how the democratic process works in their schools and they can become really dissatisfied with it. And they can see, look, the democratic process doesn't work really well. And they could end up being less likely to vote as adults. There's one study by uh, David Fleming at Furman, Furman mm -hmm. University, and he found that the Milwaukee program kids in the public schools were less likely to say they were going to vote as adults. And it could mm -hmm. be because they're seeing that, uh, that, that these like parent-teachers meetings and, and what have you aren't having an, a, a real effect on what actually mm -hmm. happens in the schools. Absolutely. Okay, let's uh, we'll go down to Doug. Uh, Doug asks, why can't they teach and pass on an individual basis instead of a group basis? Which is an excellent question, uh, especially for libertarians who are often called sort of radical individualists, uh, which is actually, I don't think, accurate. I, I'm not a political philosopher, so if I get this wrong, we can just, like I said, I went to public schools, so we blame public schools. Um, but more importantly, certainly I agree that we uh, can only ultimately be reduced to the individual level. I would, though, say that for a lot of individuals, their group identity or identities is very important. So I, I like to, when we talk about these things, and they come up a lot in public school values battles, um, that we shouldn't neglect the or, or assume that it's 
that people don't find their group identity, whether it's religious, whether it's ethnic, whether it's both, whether it's their class, whatever it is that that's important to them. But let me let me just re-ask the question since I decided to pontificate, <laughs> uh, just uh, in case you. Oh, I lost I lost the question. So I hope you remember. Why don't we individualize rather than yeah, at right, the group rather level. than groups? Sorry, I lost so your question. So public schools were created to to make people good American citizens, whatever whatever that means, whatever the uh, uh, the, the philosophers had to, had to say about what mm -hmm. American looks like. Um, was and what it historically, was. let's be clear, it was sort of a pan-Protestant, meaning non-sort of denominational no Protestant. No, right. right. This was the Horace Mann yeah. vision. Immigrants are coming in. Um, we need to make sure. And with sort of upper-class <laughs> values. Uh, and Horace Mann himself was very particular. Uh, if you read enough Horace Mann, you actually get to where he's gone to Prussia and spends pages of his report talking about how they, uh, the kids in Prussia, their comforters are too hot. He went there in the 1830s? Is that uh, 1840s. 1840s. But he was very sure he had a lot of answers, uh, including what size your comforter should be. Anyway, sorry, continue. Yeah, that's pretty much all I had to say about it. But it really reminded me of this whole economic theory of market failure, of externalities, and I think they were trying to get at that. And the idea behind it is if people are choosing their own schools, they may choose based on things that don't benefit the rest of society. Mm -hmm. So like if I become a more informed voter, you benefit from that, um, but I only get part of that benefit. So the idea is that I'll, or if I become a good person and I'm less likely to rob from you when I mm -hmm. grow up, you benefit from that. So the theory is that the market fails to produce the character education. Right. Um, but what we're seeing in the studies is that the criminal activity goes down by about half or more. Um, there's three studies now. Two of them are experiments and one is a, a, a quasi-experiment. Two are on public school choice, one's on private school choice, finding huge reductions from character education, from school choice, on the likelihood of being a, becoming a criminal as an adult. Mm -hmm. And that's huge. And that's, that's a a, a very uh, classic example of an externality problem that just doesn't play out when you look at the actual evidence. Yeah, and just one thing, you can look it up, I won't go into detail, but you can look it up on the public schooling battle map. Um, but the, to, just to show this sort of there's not a clear dichotomy between individuality and group, there is a, a huge battle that's been going on in the Tucson Unified School District for years about a Mexican-American uh, curriculum that is supposed to help kids of Mexican-American background understand and identify to some extent with their history. Uh, and there were people in authority in Arizona said this is unacceptable because it sort of teaches a, uh, a racial or ethnic unity when we should all be good Americans and good Arizonans. And so it was telling individuals, you shouldn't really have this group identity, you should have another. And again, look it up on the public schooling battle map, uh, and then you can also Google it and find even more information. Now, we have a question from Colleen who says, have there been many studies looking into the effect of school choice on parental involvement in their children's education? This is a good one. Uh, you can take this one first. Um, the answer is yes. I, actually, I, I have one study, if you don't okay, touch no, on it. Okay, no, go ahead, go ahead. It's the Levenheim and Walsh, is that the one you were thinking about? Uh, essentially, when they find, so this was released in 2017, it might have been released again as a published mm -hmm. version in 2018, uh, it might have been EER, I'm not quite sure. But anyway, what they found was when, when parents are actually given choice, they're more likely to actually look up the information mm -hmm. uh, required to make schooling decisions. And that really makes a lot of sense, right? That, that 
if you don't have choice, you're not really that interested in looking up things about other schools because they're not viable mm -hmm. options for you. So what they found was when you actually look, when you're actually given the power to choose your schools, you are a much more involved parent uh, looking at educational options. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think there are, uh, there are definitely other studies. I can't name all the authors, and I don't remember if they're all sort of random assignment, the top quality experimental um, uh, analysis. But there are others that have looked at, uh, even some of it is public school choice. When you are given some sort of choice, do you get more involved in the PTO or in school activities or even helping your kids with homework? And I think that, I'd have to go back and look because I haven't spent a whole lot of time on this, but I believe most of those have found an increase in parental involvement. Not all of them, but I think some of them have. And it certainly, intuitively, it makes sense if you are empowered to choose a school, you're going to be more invested in that school. You're going to identify more with that school. Um, now we go to the next question from Kids for Liberty. Again, I don't think this is somebody's name on their birth certificate, but <laughs> Kids for Liberty says, I'm homeschooled. How do you think homeschooling plays into the school choice system? Another excellent question because we often neglect homeschooling because it's sort of not part of the schooling system. Um, and they're actually terrific uh, debates about that really get into the meat of, of the philosophy of school choice of, do we want any connection to government? Yeah, so we were just talking to a couple of the school choice, uh, people from the school choice organizations at the uh, International School Choice and Reform Conference. I always get that mixed up. But They've added a lot of names yeah, to that conference. ISCRC, but yeah. we talked to them a lot about this, and a lot of, so the Homeschool groups are, are kind of mixed on how they feel about school choice. Um, some of them are kind of skeptical. Some of them even called school choice a Trojan, a government Trojan horse because of what I talked about earlier, that if it's a regulated program, uh, the private schools could turn to public schools essentially uh, by doing everything that the public schools are doing. Uh, but then there's also this fear that homeschool communities will start to use these types of programs and say, hey, charter school's kind of like uh, homeschool. A virtual charter school at home is really like a homeschool. A private school is kind of like a homeschool. So um, there's kind of mixed feelings about it, uh, but I'd say the if, if a homeschool family really does want to take advantage of private school choice, it, it would be through either through the virtual charters at home or an education savings account, which is essentially if you opt out of your traditional public school or if you're homeschooled, some of them don't allow for homeschool funding, but some do. It depends on the bill. Um, but that those funds go into a savings account, and you can spend it on things like homeschooling uh, mm -hmm. services. So um, if homeschool community really wants to benefit from these types of programs, they should be pushing for education savings accounts, in my view. Yeah, but it's, it's it, because this really does go right to the heart of what we've talked about is school choice programs, there's, again, a spectrum, but they, uh, I think all of them, it's hard to say with ESAs because they're awfully new, only five mm -hmm. or so years old, but even scholarship tax credits, which uh, Andrew Coulson, uh, who was the former director of the Center for Educational Freedom, talked about in this book, Educational Freedom, remembering Andrew Coulson uh, debating his ideas, but he had done work that showed empirically tax credits tend to be less regulated than vouchers because you're not taxpayers don't feel that they are having their money taken from them and given directly to someone who may choose an option 
that teaches values they don't like or does a bad job of teaching math or something like that. But even tax credits we've started to see get regulated. And the Illinois now has a new tax credit law, which was shocking to people because people said, oh, it's too blue a state. But it's, it has a lot of regulations that are built into it. So homeschoolers, I think, are absolutely being reasonable when they're very leery of programs that help get them any, in any way through government help get them. Even if it's privately funded because tomorrow the government could say, well, tax credits were supposed to go to the government, so they're public funds. And I think Massachusetts kind of defines tax credits as public funds. Yeah. So uh, that's an excellent question. Now we have a question from Hugh. He says, is it true that anything that breaks the education monopoly strengthens education and makes it harder to co-opt any uh, curriculum? Although that sounds familiar. We already got that question. Yeah, that sounds familiar. No double dipping. Um... (laughs) Uh, but I, I, I do think, well, I guess we've covered that. But we've covered to it reiterate, uh, you can get bad programs that have long-term negative effects if they sort of get that camel's nose under the tent where the government can start to regulate. Uh, generally speaking, though, we, we do want to move more and more toward a system where schooling decisions are based on family choices. And this is always important, we don't mention it enough, where educators have the autonomy to create schools and other educational options, because not everything's a school anymore. It can be tutoring, it could be online, uh, it could be they sell specific curricula, but where they have maximum ability to provide what they think is right, and then their accountability and their success is based on freely people freely choosing them and bringing them to Yeah, and that kind of reminds me of a point that's not made often enough is school choice can really benefit teachers and educators alike. Uh, because in the current system, if you want to be a teacher at the K-12 level, you have one employer, the government. There's essentially a monopsony. Uh, and so we hear monopoly a lot, but monopsony is when there's one seller of the service, mm-hmm. one producer. So uh, in a school, of, in a, a system of private school choice, it introduces more competition to acquire but good teachers. So like in the Hogmans in South Korea, someone, someone over there is getting paid millions of dollars, uh, four or five million a year, uh, because there's a, a system of choice over there. Mm-hmm. Now we're gonna go to our last question. It, it um, says, how does school choice impact the poorest and most marginalized students? And this is really another sort of crucial question that gets right at the heart of things because one of the arguments against school choice is, well, there's no incentive for a private school or a charter school to work with those kids who are toughest to educate. And so what you'll see is cream skimming is that they'll take the really the top quality kids and they'll leave the kids that are tougher to educate or struggle more in the public schools and it'll be totally unfair. And it'll be especially unfair to those kids who are, who are struggling the most. Yeah, so a lot of people argue that one way to deal with this is to force the admission standards over to the state. Uh, but, and Louisiana does that, which, again, I'll, I'll add again that it's the first experimental evaluation in the world to find negative impacts on student achievement. Um, and one of the big things there is partially because of this open admissions thing, I think, uh, only a third of the private schools chose to participate, and of those that participated compared to those that did not, the ones that were most desperate to accept the funding and accept all these regulations, such as uh, surrendering your, your admissions standards over to the state, they were the lower quality schools as well. So by trying to force equality through, through this type of uh, regulation, you're actually causing all these uh, problems, such as lowering the amount of schools that are available mm-hmm. for all students, and lowering the quality of the schools that are available. So you got to weigh those costs and benefits. Um, but, 
but to get at the marginalized communities thing, most of the programs in the United States today are, are targeted towards the least advantaged students in society. After all, there are 63 private school choice programs in the United States today, and only less than a half of, uh, less than 1% of the population, uh, school aid population, has, actually has access to these programs, and it's the least advantaged students. Um, but another thing on that is there's 24 studies looking at the students that don't even choose to use private school choice when it's available, the ones that are left behind in public schools. 23 of these 24 studies find positive impacts because of competitive pressures on the students that don't even choose to use private schools because their families are you know, not motivated to seek out the program or whatever it is. Um, so, so, and none of those studies find negative effects. 23 are positive, one is no difference. Yeah, and if you flip it around, I mean, the evidence suggests that the people who are using those schools are actually the ones who are struggling more. <laughs> and that sort of makes sense, is that the people who are, who are not being served by their current public school are much more likely to choose those kind of schools than someone who says, look, this school I'm at, this assigned public school is working for me. And so we don't typically see that it's, you know, the really, the people who are destined to be the valedictorian of their high school say, oh, I'm going to leave this high school and go to a private school or something like that. Um, and so the evidence doesn't suggest the, that cream skimming in, in any way, I think, is a major factor. Right. Like it couldn't ever happen, but we don't see it. And on the switching thing, yeah, it's really highly costly to switch. So you're only going to switch if you really perceive that that new school has a much a large gap in quality differential. Um, but what we do see in the evidence, as far as student achievement, I know we're not supposed to be talking about test scores, but there's a dip because students are sorting into their new schools mm -hmm. and the schools are having to adjust to their new student bodies. But then there's a positive test score trend, actually. Um, saw this in Louisiana. The first mm -hmm. year it was negative, negative half of a standard deviation, which is huge. Actually, 0.4 of a standard deviation. But the students, Still big. We'll stu take it it's big. huge. Yeah. It's it's the biggest negative effect ever mm -hmm. found. And they caught up by year three with the traditional public school students, even after uh, that negative dip of 0.4 standard deviations. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, there's transitions are very costly. Mm -hmm. Well, I thank everybody who has sent your questions using hashtag CatoCDF. Uh, before we go, and, and thank you all, everybody who was who watching, uh, and certainly if you have other questions and you put them on CatoCF even when we're done, uh, Corey and I, we are both on Twitter. Uh, we're also both on Facebook, although I hate using Facebook. But no, I'm just kidding. I love Facebook. Um, but Twitter I use uh, just as much, uh, if not a little more. There's also, I should say, a CatoCEF Facebook page. The uh, Public Schooling Battle Map has a Facebook page. Uh, and again, we also have Facebook pages. Um, but you can certainly send questions there when we are done. And also, I want to say we have some other events, which you can also send questions to. And you can start sending them right now, if you want, to hashtag CatoCEF. Uh, on January 31st, we are having an event for the new book by economist Brian Kaplan, The Case Against Education. You may have heard of this book. It's starting to cause ripples. When you uh, put the title of your book, The Case Against Education, that's going to get people talking because everyone says all education is always good because education is always good. Uh, we're going to talk about that. Is it actually the case that what we call education should be 
uh, consumed in endless amounts, or maybe are we putting too many resources into it? Uh, then February 1st, we're having an event, Islamic Education in the United States. That's uh, another new book. Uh, and this really gets to an important debate that we've had within the school choice community, but also outside of school choice, which is, is it dangerous to allow people and groups that, that some people say maybe have extremists, is it dangerous to allow people to choose those schools? And so we're going to talk about, is it true that Islamic schools are dangerous? What does the evidence show? What do people in Islamic schools want? We could equally have stories about lots of different kinds of schools. Often people say, I don't want my kids to learn from a textbook that comes from Bob Jones or something like that. Uh, and But we have good research now, uh, lots of other research on Islamic schools. So we're going to look at that too. And again, remember, you can send questions to that or anytime you have questions, right, for the yeah. folks here at the Center for Educational Freedom, you can send them at hashtag CatoCEF. And so with that, I thank you for joining us.